All right, so before we begin, I would just like to state for the record that today is April 4th, 2022, and my name is Ben Bauman, and I'm here in Indianapolis, Indiana, and I'm speaking via phone with Mark Carmichael, who is in Louisville, Kentucky, and we are doing an interview for the Indiana Legislative Oral History Initiative. So just starting off, when and where were you born? I was born in 1950 in Muncie, Indiana. Okay, and uh, what were your parents' names? My mother's name was uh, Norma, and my uh, dad's name was Robert Carmichael. When did your family move to Indiana? Well, um, as long as I can remember, uh, my family has been in Indiana. Um, Many, many generations back. Wow, okay. Uh, Yeah, so I think... Uh, I had a, a, a cousin who worked on the family tree, and if I remember right, uh, he had names going well back into the uh, 1800s. Oh, wow. Okay, yeah. Yeah, so a long, long time. Uh, what were your parents' occupations? Uh, my dad was a teacher and a coach and then a, a public school administrator in the Muncie school system, and with six kids, my mom stayed home. And did you uh, have any siblings? I have five. Oh, wow. I'm the oldest of six. All right. Yeah. So how would you describe your childhood? Um, Typical Indiana uh, country Existence. We lived north of Muncie in Delaware County, and um, uh, we we played among ourselves and the neighborhood kids. Um, we I rode the bus to school for twelve years, same bus driver. Wow! And <laughs> um, we had a very good time. We, like most of our friends and neighbors, were you know had very modest income with my dad being a, a school teacher and my mom being a homemaker. Um, but we had a, we had a lot of fun. We played uh, sports from uh, the beginning uh, that I can remember. My brother and I played uh, out in the yard, uh, changing the sport with the season. Um, and my sisters uh, were cheerleaders and then they all turned out to be uh, public school teachers. Uh, oh, I'm the okay. only one. I'm the only one who was never a public school teacher. Even my brother Bruce uh, spent some time teaching and coaching uh, before taking over his wife's family business. So um, uh, I have aunts and uncles who are public school teachers, cousins. Um, it's just a, a long tradition in our family to be involved in public education. Yeah, sounds like it for sure. Uh, Yeah. So who were the most influential people in your childhood? Well, certainly my parents, um, but then also the coaches that I had growing up. um, And I had an uncle, Dan, my dad's younger brother, uh, who was very influential in our lives. And then uh, we also had uh, uh, an uncle Corwin, 
who was a World War One veteran uh, who would come out and bring us cheap candy and talk to my mom for hours on end. And, <laughs> and he was he was fun. I I just um, I had a really great growing up. You know, the our grandparents were all close in the Muncie, Delaware County area, and so. Uh, there were lots and lots of family gatherings for birthdays and holidays, and uh, you know my brothers and sisters and I and our cousins would enjoy getting together and and playing together um, all those years. It was a very uh, it was a very wonderful childhood. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Sounds like there's a lot happening and a lot of things to do. Always. Always, uh, always something to do. And then if it was a rainy day, then I like to read. Uh, I would usually read until I had a headache, and then I'd have to quit. But uh, <laughs> so anyway, uh, sports and uh, school and uh, family gatherings dominated my early life. Yeah, that's, that's cool. All right. Um, what schools did you attend growing up? Um, I attended Royerton School. Royerton was a, started out as a township school, Hamilton Township School. And um, back in the days when most townships had a school. And so I started there as a first grader and uh, graduated from there. Uh, the name had changed by the time I graduated, but I was in the same building uh, all 12 years. Okay. Um, a very small school. We've consolidated uh, the year uh, uh, before my senior year, and so I went to Royerton for 11 years and then graduated from what's now called Delta High School. Okay, got it. And uh, how would you describe your educational experiences? Well, we had a lot of fun, and uh, we learned a lot uh, along the way. Uh, it was a small school, and so everybody participated in everything. Uh, and so my, uh, I love to play sports, and so I, we just, uh, like we did as kids, we just changed by the season, yeah. And uh, we were so small. My my class when I was a junior would have had about seventy five kids in it, and then after we consolidated with two other smaller schools, uh, my senior class still only had one hundred and forty five students in it. So uh, we all we all participated, and so. Uh, when August rolled around, we showed up for two-a-day football practices, and then we played football through the fall. And then um, uh, those of us who played basketball, as soon as football was over, we would start practicing uh, with the guys who had been practicing basketball earlier than us because we were wrapping up the football season. And then we would, uh, as soon as basketball season was over, uh, some would go out for track, and the others of us would go out for baseball. Yeah. Uh, so it was just um, 
uh, it was a wonderful place to be because um, you had the opportunity to participate. And uh, while sometimes we weren't very good, at least we were having a good time. And um, and our parents certainly knew where we were because we were at school. We were right. either in class during the day or we were at some extracurricular activity uh, after school. And then we'd come home tired and hungry and get our homework done and fall into bed and get up the next day and do it all over again. So it was, yeah. a, it was a great growing up. Now, in terms of, of academics, I would say that they were not as rigorous as they are today. Um, you know, we, we, uh, we had good teachers and we had all the offerings that you would hope for in terms of math and science and foreign languages, as well as the regular basic courses. But um, I would say that, you know, our homework load was pretty light. And so um, we had a good time. Right. Sure. Okay. So how did you view Indiana growing up? Well, you know, you're in your own little world. Um, it was, uh, I was, we were in the, we were in the county area, the countryside. I was surrounded, depending on the, on the crop rotation. Uh, our house was either surrounded by corn or soybeans. Okay. Uh, every once in a while, somebody would, would grow tomatoes or, but anyway, um, I, Indiana to me was small town. We didn't live in Muncie, which was a pretty good-sized town at the time, uh, which was seventy-five or 80,000. It had Ball State University and a lot of manufacturing, a lot of blue-collar jobs uh, before the automobile industry crashed. Sure. Um, but we didn't go into town very much. Um, my mom would go in and do grocery shopping, uh, but, you know, she'd bring those back out. We didn't go out to eat. Um, because we really couldn't afford it. And so, um, you know, it was growing up in the country, making do with what was available either at your house or at your neighbor, your buddy's house next door or down the street. Um, and um, I didn't really think much about Indiana in comparison with any other part of the state or any other state. Yeah. Because I had never lived anywhere else. Right. And to me, this was just the way you grew up. I didn't learn much about how other people lived until I went off to college. Okay. And so, uh, yeah, tell me about uh, your college experience then. What was that like? Well, I ended up getting a local scholarship from Delaware County, um, a banker by the name of Oliver Store. Uh, had started the Muncie Banking Company uh, back in the maybe late 1800s, early 1900s, and had left a substantial amount of money in a trust fund to send Delaware County students to college um, for all four years uh, tuition-free. And so um, every senior... Uh, who wanted to go to college in Delaware County always applied for the store scholarship as well as any other state or national 
scholarships that you might be eligible for. And I was lucky enough to win one of the store scholarships when I was a senior at Delta. Okay. And when you filled out this application, um, you had to put on there your top three choices, um, and then they would decide based on how many scholarships the committee was going to give that year and the tuition at each college because they had to, you know, stay uh, under their budget. Um, uh, So when I filled out my application, I asked my mom, well, what do you think I should put? And she said, well, where do you want to go? And I said, well, you know, Notre Dame would be good. And, um, and I had also looked at some smaller schools to maybe play football. And she said, well, which school is the most expensive? And I said, well, Notre Dame. And she said, well, won't you put Notre Dame and, and your second and third choice. And then, you know, they may decide that they can't afford to send you to Notre Dame, but maybe they can send you to your second or third choice. And I said, oh, okay. And so, um, they sent me to Notre Dame. Wow. And, um, I was 18. I had never been out of Delaware County very much. Hadn't done many things. And all of a sudden, you know, I'm in this, this university up in South Bend where people come not only from all over the country, but literally from around the world. Yeah. And, um, there are no, fraternities at that time Notre Dame was still all male and uh there were no fraternities you lived in the dorms and uh and everyone lived there uh there were no special facilities for athletes so they lived in the dorms and so your dorm life kind of became your campus life and um I was um I was in a room with a fellow from Detroit Michigan um our neighbors next door were from um, uh, Rochester, New York, and um, the guys across the hallway were from Chicago and uh, a suburb of Detroit, which name escapes me right now. But anyway, um, it was the first time, really, that I had been thrown in um, with these were basically Catholic boys who had fought and scratched their way through uh, Catholic high schools to get to Notre Dame. I was this guy from Delaware County who just was lucky enough to win a local scholarship. And the truth is, I have no business here. I was, I was no more prepared for the academic rigors of Notre Dame. Uh, and I I I struggled. Um, These guys were a lot smarter than I was. They knew how to study. Um, They made fun of the way I talked. (laughs) (laughs) And and it was a tough four years for me because it was uh, hard work. You know, I don't really look back, like a lot of people look back on their college, uh, their four years in undergrad as some of the most fun they ever had. Right. And I can't say that. I mean, we we studied all the time. Um, and if we weren't studying, um, you know, we were drinking, 
just trying to get through the South Bend winter. <laughs> and uh, we would play intramural sports and and uh, and go to ball games. Obviously, you, you went to the football games, you went to the basketball games, the hockey games. But it was all male. It was intense. Everyone was trying to succeed. Um, a lot of their parents were paying the way. And so there was a lot of pressure, you know, to live up to to that investment. And um, and I just found myself uh, completely over my head. And um, I made it out in four years. And, um, you know, I'm glad now that I went there. But I don't look back on it as, you know, the, the most fun I had over a four-year period. It was hard work. Yeah. And um, uh, I guess that was, you know, didn't kill me. But looking back, having stayed in Indiana, uh, I think I would have had more fun and done just as well if I had gone to IU or Purdue or Butler uh, or maybe one of the small schools. Uh, like I looked at Wabash and I looked at Rose Poly and uh, ended up not going there to play football. But I think I would have had more fun and done uh, just as well had I not gone to Notre Dame. And my family's not Catholic. Yeah. I, I, I like to tell people that I was affirmative action at <laughs> Notre Dame. It was um, all male, 99% white, and Catholic. And their idea of diversity was a white male non-Catholic. Yeah. And that was that was me. They lowered their standards to get me in. And uh, I just feel fortunate that Mr. Store made it possible for not only me, but hundreds of kids from Delaware County to go to school for free. And, um, and then um, uh, fortunate that that you know, I I made it out of there, and yeah. um, it was it was hard work. But like I said, it didn't kill me, and it probably looked good then on every resume thereafter um, to say that I went to Notre Dame. But um, yeah, it was a eye opening experience. Yeah, sounds like it. That's that's interesting. And it was in the late it was in the late sixties and early 70s during the time of the unrest over Vietnam and Cambodia. So it was a tough time to be in school from that perspective, too. Yeah. Um, you know, it was just a really, a lot of turmoil uh, from external uh, forces and then a lot of work in the classroom. So uh, emotionally, uh, it was a rough time. Right. Um, so let's see. Now, what did you major in in college? I majored in radio and television. They called it communication arts. Oh, okay. And I was just sure that I was going to be the next Johnny Carson. Okay. You know, or, uh, we didn't know about David Letterman yet. But, yeah. Um, you know, I was just sure that I was going to be either a big-time radio disc jockey at, in Chicago or... Uh, television, and then uh, as my senior year came to an end and I started 
interviewing and looking around for jobs in that industry, it became apparent that, you know, they weren't that crazy about hiring me and the jobs didn't pay anything. And most of what was out there was uh, like late night and weekend stuff and, uh, and not in South Bend. So um, my wife at the time had a teaching job um, we got married when I was a junior and, uh, she moved to South Bend and had a teaching job, um, uh, in the South Bend community schools. And we decided that her job was more important than me taking some menial job at a little tiny radio station in Des Moines, Iowa or something like that. So we stayed and I then decided to, uh, to interview and and I ended up working for then the university uh, for four years after graduation. So uh, I started off in the registrar's office um, before I graduated. I actually started before my senior year was over and uh, I was sort of in charge of my own graduation. course the registrar is up on stage with the president and the distinguished guests uh, during the graduation but those of us who worked in the registrar's office we were in charge of getting everybody lined up getting everybody in their seats uh, you know making the the pro the program work and so uh, here I am I'm in my cap and gown but I'm also working the show so um that was an interesting start to my, uh, my time at Notre Dame. Um, I spent two years then working in the registrar's office, and then I shifted over to the Athletic and Convocation Center and helped them put on the events that took place there in addition to the athletics. There were concerts, and there were banquets, and there were weddings, and there were conventions, and um, and that was an interesting place to work. Yeah, uh, I was in charge of purchasing the alcohol for uni- the university. We only had one alcohol permit, and it was there at the athletic and convocation center. So I was in charge of purchasing um, the the alcohol for that permit, and doing so, I met all the suppliers, local beer, wine, and liquor suppliers. And uh, one of those was the Budweiser distributor, United Beverage Company, uh, there in South Bend. And they made me an offer uh, to come on board as their operations manager. So uh, I made that move and worked there from 1976 to 79. And so that, and then my wife and I moved back to the Muncie area so that our kids could have the same kind of growing up we did. And that was around family and family gatherings. We were, we were burning the roads up between South Bend and Muncie trying to keep our kids involved in family events. And they were real young. They didn't know their own family. They were, they would cling to us because we were the only people they knew. And so we decided once driving back from a Christmas that all things being equal, 
as a teacher, she could get a job in Muncie. I could look for other work, and we should probably move back. So right. we left South Bend. Uh, I left South Bend. She left South Bend in 79. So I was there from 1968 to 1979 in South Bend, either as a student or working um, for either Notre Dame or United Beverage Company. Okay, interesting. Now, um, in what ways did your awareness of uh, politics sort of develop when you were in college? I, I like to say that when I was growing up, we really didn't talk politics as a family. Okay. We were not political. We were sports-oriented, you know, or school-oriented. Yeah. Or work work oriented and um, uh, but politics was not discussed at the dinner table. Um, my dad came from a Republican family. My mother came from a Democrat family. Uh, but politics was not uh, a driving force in our lives growing up. So I go off to Notre Dame, and it's 1968. And, uh, you know, things in Vietnam are not good. Um, things in Cambodia uh, were not good. Um, uh, Richard Nixon defeats uh, McGovern in 72. And, um, you know, my first vote, uh, because then we couldn't vote until we were 21, my first vote for president was for McGovern. And um, and uh, it was really those years at Notre Dame that took me from being apolitical to being a Democrat. And it was the Nixon administration that basically, as I sorted things out, I thought, you know, if, if this crowd is the Republican Party, I must be a Democrat. Yeah. So um, that those four years at Notre Dame uh, basically uh, is how I became a Democrat. Okay, interesting. And so, how did you uh, then become seriously involved in politics? Well, my wife and I moved back to Muncie in 1979, and uh, I took a job uh, with the overhead door company of Hartford City. As a, as, a, as a sales rep and, um, and did that job for uh, a year and uh, met some fellows from uh, the Chesterfield Lumber Company in the Anderson area, and they offered me a job to be a sales rep for them. And, um, and I took it and uh, worked for them for... Um, uh, let's see, uh, almost 10 years, and they were involved in Republican politics. Um, more than, I mean, more than average. I mean, they were, they were involved uh, in their community uh, in Republican politics. I was kind of the token Democrat. And, um, but I, I really wanted to be involved uh, in the Muncie area 
in Democrat politics. And so I approached uh, my employers in 1984 and said I'd like to dip my toe in the water and run for county commissioner uh, in Delaware County. And they were very supportive uh, because they did similar things um, in the in the Anderson area. Yeah. And so, unfortunately, um, that year, there was an incumbent county commissioner, and myself, along with uh, four others, challenged this individual in the primary and got soundly thumped. Um, I believe I came in fourth in a five-person primary, and the only person I beat never showed up to any of the events, just kind of phoned it in. Okay. I, I beat that person, um, but the others beat me like a drum. But I, I got dressed up in my suit and tie, and I went to the events. I had my little three-by-five cards where I told them how I was going to change the world and make Delaware County, you know, the best place to live on earth, and they all nodded and then didn't vote for me. Um, and so I went away kind of with my tail between my legs and and uh, went back to work, um, you know, selling uh, for Chesterfield Lumber Company. And then my mother-in-law uh, was working at Ball State University, and she came home one day with this flyer um, that Ball State I don't remember if this was the first session or it was an early session of what they call the Bowen Institute, which was named after former governor Doc Bowen. And it was a weekend long uh, uh, session, seminar, multiple um, pres presenters over many different topics about how to become involved uh, and to how to uh, succeed in politics and she said you know it's only a hundred bucks or something and um you know you might really enjoy this and this was in 1985 i had just gotten thumped in 1984 and you know i had enough time to lick my wounds and now i'm ready to get better at this you know yeah. i don't want to i don't want to finish fourth uh in my next race and so i went i met uh, a lot of interesting people who were already involved in politics. I took notes, um, and most importantly, I met the uh, the Democrat faculty members at Ball State, and uh, we became friends. We're still friends to this day. We don't stay in touch like we used to, but we're still friends. And um, I went away with a lot better knowledge of the political system. I went away understanding all the mistakes I made in 1984, and I went away determined to try again and do better. And so I began thinking about 1986. Um, but so was the Democrat Party in Delaware County. They were also thinking about 1986, and in Delaware County, the Democrats are always famous for having two factions, the faction that's in power 
and the faction that wants to be in power. And so um, I got approached by both camps, uh, each of whom had a race that they wanted me to run on their behalf that was a suicide mission. Okay. Um, you know, and uh, I wasn't interested in a suicide mission, and I wasn't interested in getting beat twice, and I really wasn't interested in the job that even if I had won, I didn't want the job, like, you know, county assessor. Yeah. What do I know about being county assessor, you know? Right. Or county clerk. Well, it's just so happened that, you know, these factions, that those offices were held by somebody that they wanted to defeat. And they saw me as a possible winner. They were somewhat impressed by my appearance and, uh, you know, my ability to speak to a crowd or to, uh, you know, work the crowd and, and uh, be a, a decent person. So um, both camps approached me uh, about running in 1986 simply because they had a mission and they saw me as a, a maybe a way to win it. Um, I was thinking more about the Indiana General Assembly because it was a part-time job. Uh, you know, you didn't have to give up your day job. If I had been elected to a county office, I wouldn't have been able to keep my job uh, at Chesterfield Lumber Company. Yeah. So um, I began thinking about the Indiana General Assembly. Well, the, the Indiana state senator from my area, uh, the two of them, actually, who came together kind of in the middle of Delaware County, were both Democrats. So I wasn't going to take them on. I'd already tried that once, and that didn't didn't work. So, but the Republican, but but the state representative where I lived was a Republican. The problem was he was the Republican Speaker of the Indiana House. Wow. Okay. Yeah. And so um, I thought, you know, I. Doesn't really matter to me. I don't have anything to lose, I guess. And so I approached these uh, professors at uh, Ball State that I had met, and I said, guys, we had lunch uh, at the student union or something one day in the, in the fall. This is after the Bowen Institute. This is now in the fall of 85. And I said, boys, I've uh, been thinking about running for the Indiana General Assembly. And they're all excited until they realize that uh, what I'm suggesting is that we take on the Speaker of the House. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> they were very excited, you know, both from a, a political uh, standpoint uh, and friends and Democrats. Um, they were excited. And, and they got me excited. And so... Um, we began to meet and plan uh, about this race, and um, then um, uh, Hurley Goodall was a state rep from Delaware County, a Democrat, and when I told him about this, um, you know, first everybody who knew anything at all about politics would roll their eyes and say, well, you, you can't win. And I said, oh, I know, but, you know, this is, I, I, I want to run again, 
I don't want one of these local county offices. I want to go. I want to try and and get to the Indiana General Assembly. I'm from this family of public school teachers, and I think I can be helpful. Um, you know, for public schools, for Ball State. Um, you know, and for me to kind of scratch this itch that I have. You know, about being involved in politics as a Democrat. And so Hurley said, well. This winter, when we're in session, come down to the state house, and uh, you know I'll get you in. You can sit on the on the side where the visitors can sit, um, or up in the balcony. And he said you can see the process, and I'll introduce you around uh, to Democrat leaders, and um, you know you'll get to know people. Yeah. So I, t- I took him up on it. You know that winter. I made several appearances uh, down at the state house, which was easy for me to do in my job because my job was to like travel around uh, Indiana selling our products from uh, Chesterfield, so I could find myself in Indianapolis any day I wanted to. So I started going to the state house in the winter of '85, and soon. Uh, people begin to realize that I was serious, you know, that I was going to challenge uh, Jay Roberts Daly, Bob Daly, who was the Speaker of the House. And um, it really it really got me uh, jump-started. Those visits to the State House got me jump-started, uh, not only with the Democrat Party, but with interested groups. Um uh, Democrat-leaning groups who were looking for uh, good candidates in in important races, and um, so I would go to the occasional Democrat fundraiser. Uh, you know, when the session ended that day, I might hang around um, and try and meet more of the lobbyists out in the hallway. And as the uh, the filing deadline uh, came and went. I'm the only one, the only Democrat who filed to run against Bob Daley, so I don't have to worry about um, a primary opponent, which is good and bad, really, when you're starting out and don't have much name recognition. Um, a primary opponent is not all that bad because it gets you out, uh, your name out there, right. and uh, more people uh, know about you at the end of this primary period than they would as if you didn't have a race. And so anyway, I was had mixed emotions. I was glad not to have an opponent, obviously. But um, I then got approached by uh, a man by the name of Bob Margraff, who was the chief lobbyist for the Indiana State Teachers Association. And he said that they had met as a group and had chosen me as their number one target in the House. I was going to be their top priority in the House. Um, And I went home, and my wife said, well, how'd the meeting go? And I said, well, um, he said that ISTA is going to make me their number one project, their number one target. And she said, well, what does that mean? And I said, quite honestly, I don't know. (laughs) I don't know. So, um, Bob hooked me up 
with the local president of the Muncie Teachers Association, a woman by the name of Pat Eddy, and she became my campaign manager. Um, and so her job, uh, because she didn't know uh, much about politics at the time, her job then was to uh, garner support from the teachers in the in the district, and um, and she did a great job. We had captains in every school building, elementary, middle school, high school. Uh, there were captains who were in charge of the teachers in their building, um, and uh, to get volunteers to walk door to door. Um, to put yard signs out, to stand at the polls on election day. At the same time, I have this very large family. Um, by now, see, uh, my sisters are all school teachers. Uh, my brother Bruce had been a school teacher and a coach. My dad was in the Muncie school system. They all taught where we grew up, and where we grew up, is where the district is. Yeah. And so the truth is, if I had drawn my own district, this is what I would have drawn. I mean, th these are the townships and the areas in Delaware County that I would have included in a map that I wanted to run in. It couldn't have been better. And there's no way that Bob Daly and his camp could have seen this coming. I mean, this was like a... This was like the perfect storm of family and teachers in a district that everybody knew the Carmichaels. Yeah. And um, so <clears throat> I started walking door to door in July. I worked in Anderson. That's where the, you know, the Chesterfield numbers in Anderson. I live in Muncie. The whole district lies between us. And so every night after work, I would drive to the district and walk for a couple of hours in a precinct and hand out uh, literature. And uh, I started the last week of July, and I, I walked door to door all of August and all of September and all of October and November up to Election Day. And as in the beginning, I was walking by myself and there were only 29 precincts in the district. So um, I had broken them down into solid Democrat precincts, swing precincts and solid Republican precincts. Well, since nobody knew my name, since I didn't have a primary opponent, I had to start in the Democrat precincts. Because uh, they didn't know me either. And so I walked quickly. I handed out my brochure. I did not ask for questions. I just kept moving, thanked them for their time, said, please look this over when you get a chance. I'd really appreciate your vote. Boom. On to the next house. I didn't have time to talk. I didn't have time to register anybody. I just had to keep moving. And it's hot. You know, it's August. And um, so I would walk. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. I took Friday nights off, and I walked Saturday and took Sunday off. I lost a lot of weight. 
<laughs> I, yeah. I, ne- I never looked better. But by the end of all this, I was absolutely exhausted. By the time we got to election day, I just didn't have any more gas in the tank. And the pictures that we took at my parents' house the weekend before the election, you can see it. I mean, uh, everybody else is beaming, and uh, I'm just kind of grimacing. You know, I've been, I just, I don't have anything left. So, um, we did register a lot of new voters along the way, especially at Ball State. Ball State University was in the district. The students had really never been motivated to vote um, in the elections. And so they weren't registered to vote. So we set up tables uh, at Ball State and registered uh, students to vote in Muncie uh, for the first time. And so um, that was a huge effort that uh, teachers did. Um, And so Election Day comes. We've done all this work. We've got all these signs up. We've got people at every poll. Uh, teachers and family. They've all got aprons on that say Mark Carmichael, state rep. They got brochures in their pockets. Um, You know, we've got a rotation where some people work the morning shift and some people work the afternoon shift in the middle. Uh, Sometimes there wasn't anybody at a poll, but most of the time uh, every poll had one or two workers all day long. My mom and dad worked a poll. Um, and where they voted every year. And my mom had so many people backed up to talk to her that every once in a while, my dad would have to pull her aside and, and say, you know, Norma, um, these people need to vote. They need to get moving. <laughs> so, but she insisted on talking to everyone. <laughs> and um, in, a, in a precinct that normally voted 60% Republican, I got 60% of the vote. And so um, the family connections were unbelievable. You know, we put my sisters at the schools where they taught if there was a poll there. And um, so at the end of the day, I not only beat him, but I beat him by 18 percentage points. 59% to 41%. And when the results started coming in, uh, and back then, you know, we just had radio and uh, for election returns in Delaware County. So when the results started coming in from these precincts that had been historical Republican precincts, and they were voting for me, not only were they voting for me, but they were voting for me 60-40. Yeah. The analyst on the radio uh, said, well, I, I think these numbers have been reversed. He said, I don't, there's no way that Mark is winning that precinct by that margin. I mean, that's got to be a Bob Daly precinct. Well, it wasn't. I mean, it, it was a total... Um, landslide and um and i knew it two weeks before the election because i had done the democrat precincts early and i had done the independent precincts in like september 
and I've saved the Republican precincts for last just in case I didn't get there, you know, just in case I couldn't get that far. Um, but I did get that far, and I was walking Republican precincts, and there were, uh, there were my signs were in their yards, and people were telling me that they were going to vote for me. And um, I was I I was shocked, you know. I didn't expect that reaction when sure. I got to those when I got to those Republican precincts. So I knew I couldn't. I mean, nobody would have believed me. I didn't tell anybody, but I knew two weeks before the election that I was going to win. I didn't know I was going to win so big, but I didn't. There was no doubt in my mind the last two weeks that I was going to win. And, um, and I did win by a lot. And, um, we have tape, we have, we have videotape. I don't know that it's been converted to, uh, DVDs, but we have, um, videotape from the newscasts then, uh, that night and the next day, um, where everyone was shocked that the Republican speaker had not only been beaten, but beaten by such a wide margin. Yeah. And then when, when I came down to the state house for, um, organization day, then, you know, the cameras were just everywhere. There were, there were nine Democrats who won Republican seats in that election. Um, and, uh, so the, the house Democrats went from 39 seats, uh, the day before the election to 48. Um, and so there were a lot of good stories that could have been told and were eventually told, I'm sure in local papers. And, but all the attention that day was on me. It was embarrassing, uh, because I knew all these other candidates, they're friends of mine and they, they had won tough races too. And, and many of them with help from the Indiana State Teachers Association and other groups. Uh, but, uh, no, I, all the focus was on me that day, and I was really glad when, well, you know, you love the attention, but I was glad when that day was over and yeah. we could kind of get back to normal. Um, but it was a heck of a ride. I mean, it was hard work. Uh, we started from nothing. And uh, started with, you know, talking to the Ball State guys and then the teachers got involved. And then my family, which I said earlier, was had been apolitical, you know, and and I don't know how they voted over the years. My family members, um, I remember in the primary when I had no opposition, I was still on the ballot, you know, but and so my dad goes into this precinct where they had been working the polls on election day. He goes into this precinct to vote, and he asked for a Democrat ballot. And the woman working the table said, well, Bob, you don't have to vote Democrat. Mark doesn't have an opponent. And he said, my son's on the ticket. I'm voting for my son. <laughs> so that, you know, I think I drug my family from being apolitical, and I drug my dad from being a Republican, into at least for me the democrat camp yeah and um so my family was slow to come to the realization that 
this is serious. And, you know, he's got a heck of a chance. And, and they were totally involved, um, I would say, from Labor Day on. Up to Labor Day, they were busy with their own summers and travel and, you know, vacations and that sort of thing, work. But after Labor Day, they were totally engaged. Everybody had their T-shirt. You know, everybody was walking with me in parades, handing out candy. Um, yeah, I really, I really drug them uh, deep into uh, elected politics, and um, and I think they were they were really happy to help. And then I think they were really glad when I got out <laughs> because. They really, you know, they really didn't like the grind, um, the criticisms that go with being in elective office. And if you're not a political animal yourself, you really don't enjoy any of it. So, right, yeah. Um, the first race was the best one. Um, it's always easier, you know, when you're the challenger. Uh, but then when you're the incumbent, especially the first time you run, as the incumbent, um, you know, there's no fun in it. It's just hard work, um, and you're taking all the arrows. Instead of, instead of slinging the arrows, you're taking them. And uh, it's not nearly as much fun uh, to be the incumbent as it is to be the challenger. So uh, I ran two more times and got elected both times. Uh, I served in the minority uh, for my first two years. The second two years was the 50 50 tie uh, back in 1988 where nobody knew what to do. There were no rules about a tied house. And so we went in there to organize on the Tuesday before Thanksgiving, and we didn't get out of there after hammering out an agreement between the two parties. We didn't get out of there until about one or two o'clock in the morning on Thanksgiving Day, and um, we ended up with two of everything, two speakers who alternated days, two committee chairmen who alternated meetings, and uh, equal representation on every committee with the, I, with the rule that if a bill tied up in committee, it got reported to the floor. Right. And so... Uh, thousands of bills, <laughs> it seems like, made it out of committee on a tie vote and went to the floor. Uh, and then um, I, I really didn't want to run again in 1990. I was really ready to get out after four years. But um, the Democrats wanted to draw the maps. Uh, they hadn't drawn the maps probably in 20 years or so. And um, I don't remember the last time the Democrats drew the maps before 1991. So um, I agreed to run one more time, held the seat, Democrats drew the maps, and then I stepped down. And Pat Eddy, who had been my campaign manager and still was the president of the Muncie Teachers Association, then she filled out my term in 1992 but then, unfortunately, she got beat oh, wow. um, in that race. And so she only got to serve the short session 
in 92, which I'm grateful for. I mean, at least she got to do that and, and always be known as a state rep. Um, so that was bittersweet, but, um, I, I really enjoyed the race and the first race against Bob Daly and, um, and I, you know, I'm, I'm glad I was able to win the other two, but they weren't nearly as much fun. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Um, let's see, thinking about some of your experiences then in the general assembly, um, you know, what were your expectations for the legislative process going in? Did you feel like you were prepared for that, or was it a learning curve? Or, Well, I think uh, coming down the session before, uh, in the wintertime in, uh, in 86, um, gave me a really good perspective of what to expect Yeah, uh, from the uh, way the House ran itself and, and the committee process and the building itself where everything's located and that sort of thing. But I wasn't prepared for how important the politics was as opposed to the policy. Um, our first meeting after we were elected in 86 that was organized by the Democrat Party the first meeting we attended was on how to get reelected. Yeah. There was no discussion about how to file a bill <laughs> or, you know, how to, how to work with constituents or there was no discussion about public policy. The entire discussion was about how to get reelected. And that was an eye opener for me. Uh, I didn't expect that, but then I came to learn that the most important thing, especially to the leadership of each caucus, is to be the leader, to be in charge, you know, to run the show. And the rest of us, especially those of us who had just arrived, were kind of in the back rows to, um, you know, just to vote when called upon and... Um, learn along the way certainly but the most important thing to the leaders is to be the leader and for them to be the leader you have to get reelected and for you to get reelected these are the things you need to do and so um, you know we did them uh, and we learned along the way because when we came in we were in the minority now it was a, it was a close it was a close split uh, 52 to 48, and when I came in, each caucus had conservatives and moderates and liberals. Okay. Each caucus. Yeah. And so um, it was an eye opener for me that there were conservative Democrats, <laughs> and uh, I I sat next to one after the 88 election. Good friend, Dale Grubb, from um, Covington, Indiana. And Dale is a conservative Democrat. And I didn't, I guess I didn't know they were out there. So anyway, and there were liberal Republicans. And so the 52-48 split in my first two years was an eye-opener because 
I would see Democrats who couldn't vote for things that I thought were logical, but then we'd be joined by some liberal Republicans and might have gotten it passed. So <clears throat> I was that was a good time when each caucus had that split and we were all friends. We all became friends uh, across the aisle. Uh, after we got done with our work, we would go out to eat together and uh, we would do, we had a bowling tournament every year with a big trophy that either sat on the Republican side of the, uh, uh, up at the front of the chamber or the Democrat side, depending on who won the bowling tournament that year. Okay. They don't, they don't do that anymore. Yeah. You know, we had, we did, had a basketball game at what was in Market Square Arena where we divided up. We, these weren't Republican and Democrat teams. They were split uh, bipartisan teams. And um, on my team was Evan By. He was Secretary of State. And so, um, you know, we had fun as Democrats and Republicans. We would argue over uh, issues, but when the day was done, we had fun together. They don't do that these days. You know, it's too partisan. The, ger the gerrymandered maps have made the whole system break down. Uh, but we weren't that way. In 1986, the maps had been drawn in 81, but they weren't sophisticated. They weren't using computers. You know, they were just kind of getting together as the majority caucus and deciding among themselves what their district should look like. And it was kind of out of your shirt pocket kind of a deal, you know, not out of a computer. Well, now it comes out of a computer, specially designed by the majority party to make their majority even stronger in the fall. Yeah. The, pro the problem it causes is that now you have to be such a hardliner to win your primary. Now all we're doing is sending hardliners from both parties. And it's not just Indiana. It's all over the country. It's in the Congress. Yep. The gerrymandered maps are doing nothing but sending us hardliners who can't negotiate, can't compromise, because then they can't go back and win their primaries. And so it's a ridiculous thing, and it's all because of gerrymandering. And it needs to be abolished, and we need to get to nonpartisan commissions that draw maps for the people and not for the politicians. Right. Back then, back then, the politicians were drawing the maps, but and they might start off pretty strong, but as the decade wore on and people moved around, um, the maps would break down a little bit, and that's why I was able to beat a Republican speaker, and the other eight Democrats that won that year were able to beat a Republican incumbent was because the maps... Um, didn't draw um, uh, impossible districts. And so, um, again, when I got there, I was surprised at how important politics were to the leadership. Yeah. Now, those, of us, those of us in the back of the room, we still think we're going to make the world a better place. So we're filing bills, uh, you know, either liberal or Democrat, either liberal bills or conservative bills, bills for the environment, uh, 
bills for cutting taxes. I mean, we were filing bills left and right thinking these are all going to get heard and they're going to get passed and uh, life in Indiana will have never been better. Well, that's not the way it works. Um, you can file your bills. Getting them passed, getting them heard is, is hard. Getting them passed is worse. And then when it goes to the other chamber, you know, it may or may not get heard. It, it may get changed quite a bit. Uh, and you may end up in conference committee where uh, it could be completely different by the time that process is over. So it's a great learning experience. I wish everybody could do it uh, because they would have a better understanding uh, about how this uh, country works and how, you know, they can have an impact on things either through uh, an association or through a lobbyist, but if they don't want to be a legislator. But, um, you know, at the end of the day, politics trumps policy. Right. Okay. Once you learn that, you know, now you can decide... Well, do I want to be here for a long time? Do I want to fight the system? Uh, I have a lot of admiration for legislators who stayed because they were uh, determined to make people's lives better, even if they got beat up year after year after year. Every once in a while, they'd get a little victory, and it was enough to keep them going. I wasn't that way. You know, once I learned that politics trumped policy, I lost interest um, because I wasn't there to see how long I could stay. I was there to try and do things, get things done. And I didn't have, I guess I didn't have the patience to stay and stay and stay. Uh, I had a young family and um, I, I quickly found out that while we call it a part-time legislature, it's actually a full-time job. Yeah. And, you know, it, it really takes more of your time than you could ever imagine. Not just in Indianapolis, but back home in the district. Because, you know, once you're a legislator, then lots of people want to hear from you. Lots of groups want to have you come, have a meal, be the speaker, tell them what's going on takes a lot of time and uh when you're when you're new you want to make everybody happy and so you go to everything and uh it takes a lot of time so it becomes a full-time job around which you have to keep your other job going uh unless you're retired and that's what's happening more and more is that uh legislators are retired and they do it full time. Uh, back then, it was more, uh, especially from the young legislators that I came in with, uh, we all had jobs. And uh, most of us had families, young families. And so unless your, your spouse uh, and your family are totally supportive, then it, kinda, it can kind of rub them the wrong way how much you're gone. And that becomes then a dilemma for state legislators uh, is, you know, can I keep all these balls in the air uh, or not? So I wouldn't, I was ready to leave after, uh, uh, after the 89 session 
And then I agreed to run one more time, and um, and it wasn't any fun at all. And the session then in 91, where Evan Bayh is governor, the Democrats control the House, the Republicans control the Senate, and we were there for a regular session and two special sessions and didn't finish until like June 15th. And I said, I'm leaving. <laughs> I'm not doing this anymore. Yeah. Because it's all about politics. Right. Trying to make the other side look bad, you know, or not not willing to spend this much money on things that we desperately need to spend money on. And I just got sick of it. And so um, by that time, I had a job at Indiana Gas Company. I had left Chesterfield Lumber and went to work for Indiana Gas um, and if I left the legislature, then I could be their full-time lobbyist. I could still be at the state house, you know, with everybody that I like to be with. But I didn't have to raise any money. I didn't have to run for re-election. Um, and so I kind of saw it as the best of both worlds. And that's really what it turned out to be. Um, I haven't left the state house since I arrived in 1986, I still have a client. Uh, I'd like to think I'm retired, but I still have one client. Um, actually, it still turns out to be Indiana Gas. Doesn't have, I've had them all along. Um, their name has changed several times, and uh, now it's Centerpoint. Vectron uh, was bought out by Centerpoint uh, a couple of years ago. So uh, I'm still there. Still having a good time. Um, don't go. I don't come around much anymore because of the pandemic. But um, I try and do everything that I need to do by text or phone. Um, so uh, I imagine I'll start spending a little more time over there, uh, starting with this next session. But hopefully, there won't be another strain come along that you know that shuts right. everything down again. But um, Definitely. So when I was <laughs> when I was a freshman a legislator, I had just defeated the Republican Speaker of the House. That means that I'm a hero on one side of the aisle, and to many on the other side of the aisle, um, you know, I'm really a piece of crap. <laughs> and so um, they, some of them, not all of them, some of them went out of their way to give me a hard time and uh i just took it you know in stride and um at the end of the session uh at least one prominent republican who had tried to give me a hard time came up and said i just wanted to tell you that that several of us in our caucus set out to make your life miserable but you handled it so well and you're such a nice guy that that we're so we're sorry, <laughs> you know, and uh, I I thanked him and and knew that I had you know made a lot of strides in winning them over, and uh, and from then on, you know, I was treated just fine. Um, this fifty fifty tie was fun and chaotic all at the same time, and then I really. By then, I was on Ways and Beans and really wanted to start 
spending money on public education, on Ball State University, and uh, the environment, you know, liberal causes that had brought me there in the first place. Yeah. And Evan Bayh was governor and didn't want to spend any money uh, because that would help his reelection and getting Republican votes around the state by being more conservative than I wanted him to be. So that was frustrating. It was frustrating to be in the majority on Ways and Means and not able to spend money on projects that were important to me. And um, Evan Pye made our caucus so mad that year that several times Mike Phillips, who was speaker, would have to take us to caucus for several hours while everybody vented about how much they hated Evan Bayh and um, how much they hated having to toe the line uh, on his spending priorities rather than doing what we wanted to do. And Mike would just sit there and listen, nod his head, uh, point to the next speaker whenever it was their turn. And he would keep us there until we were just exhausted. And he would say, well, seems to me we got two choices. We can either go down and vote against this however you want, or we can go down and show the state of Indiana that we can govern as a party. So then he would ask, who here then needs to vote against the governor and the party? Not a hand would go up. Not one. When he went into that room, he might have had 10 votes in his pocket. And when he came out, he had 52 every time. And we still talk today about how much we learned about leadership, political leadership, from those sessions with Mike Phillips in the caucus room. He came out of that room with 52 votes for Evan Bayh's package every damn time. And um, it didn't do any good. (laughs) You know, the state of Indiana did not reward the House Democrats along the way. So um, I guess, you know, we we never looked like a disjointed party, but we really never got rewarded for sticking together for Evan Bayh's package. Evan did, but we didn't. So anyway, uh, I left and have enjoyed a great career uh, in the State House as a lobbyist, first for Indiana Gas um, for about, let's see, from 91 to 99 for eight years. And then I got approached by the uh, Indiana beer wholesalers, their state executive was going to retire, and uh, they wondered if, based on my background uh, back at South Bend in the beer business, and um, I had carried some legislation for them uh, while I was a legislator, if I would be interested in taking over their association. And I really was. It was an industry that had always interested me. Um, 
And so I took their job in 99 and did that until um, 2020. So I did that for 21 years. Okay. And it was a great run. Um, along the way, I, I, I kept uh, Vectran uh, Centerpoint as a client. And uh, I stepped down from the beer wholesalers gig, uh, but I kept Vectran because while the beer wholesalers uh, dominated my time, uh, Vectran as a utility, uh, you know, doesn't need that much effort on my part. So uh, I like to tell people they don't pay me much and I don't do much. So <laughs> it works out great. <laughs> okay. Um, let's see, thinking about, uh, your, uh, time in the general assembly and the legislation that you worked on, uh, do you remember like the first bill you sponsored or authored in the general assembly? <laughs> um, <laughs> I co-authored with, uh, representative Mark Cruzan, a bill that would, uh, would prohibit <laughs> the implosion now think about this it would prohibit the implosion as a way of destroying animals at the Humane Society it turns out in Monroe County back then um, the way they put down cats and dogs uh, was they had a chamber that they put them in that sucked out all the oxygen and I guess they thought this was humane. My I don't know. Gosh, yikes. Yeah, I know. And so anyway, uh, we, we, uh, I co-sponsored that. I didn't author it, but I co-sponsored it with Mark Cruzan. That passed. And uh, uh, so that was fun. Then um, in the 50-50 tie... You know, when you're in the minority, like I was the first two years, you don't get to do much. Yeah. Uh, you don't get to author much of anything. And, as, and if you do author it, it's either A, not going to get a hearing, or B, it's not going to pass. Right. So in the, the next two years, we're in a 50-50 tie, and now you can get your bills heard because you have a Democrat chairman of the committee at least every other meeting. So Republicans would go to the Republican chairman to get their bills heard, and then Democrats, conversely, would go to the uh, uh, Democrat chairman to get theirs heard. So I had a bill in, um, I think it was in the 20, uh, uh, let's see, it was in the, I keep getting my decades mixed up. Um, it was in the 90, no, it was in the 90 session. No, 88 session. Sorry. So 88, we're tied, and I go to the Democrat chair and say, I've got this bill that would prohibit a company from firing a person who turns out to be positive with AIDS. Okay. Now, a friend of mine, a friend of mine uh, her brother uh, had AIDS, and was being discriminated against in the workplace. And so she came to me and said, um, you know, it's not fair. Um, yes, he's got AIDS, but, um, you know, he's not going to 
transmit it in the workplace. Well, this was back when people were very afraid of AIDS and uh, very homophobic. And so um, he looked at me and he said, are you serious? I said, yeah. I said, you know, this is not fair. Um, There ought to be a law. So anyway, I, I authored this bill that prohibited discrimination. I guess it was it prohibited discrimination in the workplace for people who tested positive with AIDS. He gave it a hearing. And um, as you might imagine, um, it was a tough hearing. And uh, a lot of business groups testified against it. And um, let's see, it, it did not come out of committee. It was one vote short, but it created a heck of a firestorm back home in Delaware County. It was not popular <laughs> in Delaware County, and I got a lot of messages uh, back then, they would be on the phone. You know, there wouldn't be texts or anything like that. Uh, hateful messages. That really, the first time I'd ever been on the receiving end of, uh, of that kind of vitriol. So uh, that was an eye-opener for me. Um, yeah. I, I had a woman, and you see, most of, most of these bills come when somebody asks you to do something. Right. You know, you don't. You don't just sit around thinking stuff up. So anyway, I had a woman who um, uh, had been attacked by a dog while she was walking. And uh, so I filed a a dangerous dog bill um, that basically said, you know, we're going to treat dogs like guns. Um, It's your responsibility um, to keep it away from other people, uh, and the penalties were pretty severe. Uh, you know, it might have been a levels or a low level felony, if I remember right, if there was serious injury or something like that. Anyway, um, the farming community came unglued, the Republican Party came unglued. Um, you know, the bill basically went nowhere, but then a couple of years later. Um, a constituent of Paul Manweiler's, who was the new speaker of the House, she got bit by a dog, and then they passed a dangerous dog bill. Okay. So, <laughs> I don't get credit, but I was on the cutting edge. See? Right. So, that, that shows you, it really all depends, lots of times, on legislation as to who wants it. You know, if some freshman legislator in the back wants it, it really doesn't, it's hard to get anybody's attention, but if the speaker wants it, all of a sudden it's a good idea. And uh, that's how uh, so much legislation gets passed is because someone in leadership wants it, and all of a sudden it's a good idea. It may not be the first time anyone ever had that idea, uh, but it's a good idea. So anyway, I laugh when I see Paul Manweiler. At first I tell him, remember, I made you speaker. Because I beat J. Roberts daily, and two, I greased a path to your dangerous dog bill. So you know, I expect full credit. Uh, 
There you go. Which he's reluctant to give. Sure. <laughs> um, now he's a lob- you know, now he's a lobbyist. So, you know, now we now we can hang out together on the bench and tell old war stories. <laughs> um so how complex was it then to get a bill passed? It's tough. Um it's really tough. Um it first of all it, it has to be uh, a really good idea or a really non-controversial yeah. idea. Getting a controversial bill passed is really tough. Yeah, um, And so, um, first of all, you have to convince the chairman of the committee that this bill needs to be heard. Well, a chairman only has so many meetings that he or she can have um, during the first half of the session. If we're in the long session, the committee that you're interested in getting your bill heard, it might meet three or four times. And at each hearing, hear two or three or four bills. So uh, the committee chairman has to wait until all the bills are filed, and then all the bills that are assigned to his or her committee, they have to go through and read them and talk to the authors and and uh, prioritize which bills they're going to hear this session. And your job is to make sure that your bill first gets heard. Lots of times people file bills for constituents that even the legislator is not that crazy about. Okay. And so they don't push. They don't ask. They just, you know, tell their constituent at the end of the session, well, our bill didn't get heard. Well, you know what? Um, That happens a lot, where you just kind of use the committee system to get rid of a bill that you, as the author, weren't that crazy about in the first place. You're just doing somebody a favor. Right. I always feel sorry for legislative services, how many bills they write that are never going to see the light of day. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Yeah. You know, they work till midnight. Uh, night after night trying to get these bills cranked out in time when a lot of them are just a waste of time. But anyway, back to the committee process. Um, So your first priority is to get your bill heard. And then if you need supporting testimony to get those people lined up so that they're willing to come that day and wait their turn and testify in favor of your bill, um, knowing that uh, opponents, if there are opponents, are going to be doing the same thing. On an easy bill, non-controversial bill, <clears throat> you can present it and maybe a few lobbyists will stand up and say, you know, we're in favor. Uh, but uh, a tough bill takes a lot of work and a lot of preparation, um, not only on your remarks, but on the remarks of people there. Uh, to support you. And so you have to orchestrate that so that they don't repeat the issues and and make uh, compelling arguments. Uh, And then you have to be able to handle the questions that come from committee members, which uh, oftentimes have been supplied by opponents to your bill to try and trip you up. So, you know, you have to know the subject backwards and forwards, and then you have to do your work as the leader of this group 
to get your testimony lined up, not only yours, but maybe theirs. And then you have to handle the questions. You have to, um, you have to uh, lobby the members of the committee to try and get them to vote for your bill. And then um, you have to have supporters of your bill also contact members of the committee uh, because, you know, we got to get this thing out of committee. So, and then um, committee members uh, and the chairman can offer amendments to your bill that you either have to be uh, supportive or you have to oppose. And if you're going to oppose, you've got to do it in a kindly manner so you don't anger the author of the amendment or anyone else who might possibly vote for your bill at the end of the day. So that's delicate. Okay, so then we get to the vote, and, you know, hopefully it passes. Well, that's just the first step. Now we got to go to the floor of the House, and now this bill is in front of 100 members, not just the, say, 8 or 10 members of the committee. Now, um, you know, your workload has increased, and you've got to lobby a larger group of people if it's a controversial bill. If it's non-controversial, if the committee kicks it out 10 to nothing, then your job is much easier on the floor of the House. But if it comes out uh, split, and if the split is partisan, then you know that you've got your work cut out on the side of the chamber that you know those committee members didn't vote for your bill. So uh, that's hard work. You know, the bill is going to be eligible for second reading amendments on the floor of the House, and these, they have to be filed in advance. So you have a chance to see uh, what may be offered uh, on your bill and get your arguments ready. Because when you get to the floor of the House, there are no um, experts to help you. There's no additional testimony to help you. Now it's just you, one-on-one, -on -one, up at the front with whomever is trying to make your bill better or worse. And, um, and that's, I think, where the process really breaks down is when the legislators are left to their own devices and their own wits and their own knowledge and expertise um, up at the front of the chamber when you can't turn to an expert and, and get exactly the right answer. And I've seen, oh gosh, it's just... It's hard to watch, really, yeah. when two legislators go at it at the front of the chamber and neither one of them knows what they're talking about. <laughs> and it's painful. Um, you want to just, you know, stop the proceedings and go up and say, look, you both have it wrong. And yet this is this is how things happen, you know, and um, hopefully it gets straightened out along the way. But that's why I don't watch. Uh, I don't watch the action on the floor of the Senate anymore because I just can't take it. Yeah. Um, you know, we got so many issues and legislators carrying so many bills that they can't be experts on all this, and yet someone is counting on them to get this right. And and you can't 
you can't pass them a note. You know, you can't talk to an earpiece in their ear. You just have to send them out there and hope for the best. And oftentimes it's just awful. So um, you got to get your bill then uh, out of the house uh, with a lot of misinformation floating around. Um, you do get to go up and present your bill on third reading, uh, however, it, whatever state it's in, whether it's in the original state or whether it's in the amended state, uh, you get to go up and present your bill. You, you know, you can use notes. You can, uh, you can read. I've seen people read uh, four or five pages of uh, eight and a half by 11 sheets of notes uh, on a bill and uh, uh, just go on and on and on. Um, and then the opponents uh, and your supporters can come to the mic and weigh in, uh, and then we're going to have a vote. And hopefully, you know, your bill passes out of the House, which is only the third step. Because now you've got to get a Senate sponsor to sponsor it in the Senate, and they have to get a committee hearing. We start all over. Yep. And, you know, step number four is the bill gets assigned to a committee. Now your Senate author, who knows a lot less about this subject than you do, is going to rely on you to work the committee, to work the chairman. They'll be helpful. Don't get me wrong. I mean, they're going to just like you would do on their bill if they sent it to you from the Senate to the House, you're going to be helpful. But but they don't know nearly as much about this subject as you do by now. And so you've got to go over and do the same thing all over again in the Senate. As, you know, you got to get supporters lined up. you got to lobby the committee. you got to lobby the chairman to get a hearing. you got to survive the, the uh, hearing. And then it goes to the floor of the Senate where the same thing happens with people going to the microphone who don't know what they're talking about. And your, author, your Senate sponsor down there trying to defend uh, the language as best they can. And then hopefully you get it out of the Senate. Step five. Um, and then, uh, well, that was second reading amendments, step five. Now you got to get it out of the Senate. That's step six. And then if it's been changed along the way, they'll go to conference committee, which is step seven. And then if the conferees can agree on language, it still has to go back. Conferees would be step eight. Still has to go back to the House and Senate to be adopted. That'd be steps nine and ten. And then you got to go to the governor and hopefully get a signature. So there's like, if I counted right, there's like 11 steps to passing a bill. And you have to pass, you have to complete all 11 steps to pass a bill. If it fails anywhere along the line, your bill's dead. So killing legislation is so much easier than passing it. Because all you have to do is win one round uh, and you can kill a bill. But you have to win all 11 rounds to pass it. And that's good. It really is good, except in a part-time legislature, a lot of good legislation either doesn't pass or 
because there's not enough time to explain it properly, or it never gets a hearing in the first place. And, um, you know, I mean, I, I think now that I'm out, I think we ought to meet longer, uh, and do things a little better, but, um, they're always in a hurry and we have to go back and fix mistakes because we're always in a hurry. And, you know, they pride themselves on getting out on time or getting out early. Uh, and I just think that life is too complex to be in a rush when it comes to the legislative process. But the party in control likes it that way uh, because uh, the less legislation that is heard and passed and is moving um, are the less times that, you know, they think they might lose control. So, yeah, um, it's just it's hard to pass a it's hard to pass a controversial bill, even if it's even if it's the right thing to do. Um, so patience, you know, takes a lot of patience. Yeah, I can imagine. Um, let's see. So you, you've mentioned a lot about lobbying in the General Assembly, and obviously you've experienced it from both sides. Um, how influential were lobbyists in the Indiana General Assembly? Well, when you have a, uh, a part-time legislature like Indiana does, then your staffing uh, from the caucus standpoint is fairly minimal. Um, you know, when you go to Congress and lobby, they've got five or six staffers who focus on the committees that the member sits on and do a lot of research and over the years have gained a lot of institutional knowledge and a lot of resources. Well, you get back to Indiana with a part-time legislature um, as a member, uh, I would share with two or three other legislators, especially if you're in the minority, uh, let's say three, you would share one staffer with three people, three legislators. Okay. And, and mainly what they would do is deal with constituent stuff, um, you know, uh, handle... Uh, constituent phone calls, constituent emails, problems back in the district, um, get letters and things prepared for your signature, uh, bring them down to the floor so you can sign while you're on the floor. But this one person is trying to keep up with three legislators, leaving them little or no time, let's just say no time, or any sort of in-depth research. And so lobbyists provide the in-depth research. Now, granted, um, the lobbyist is going to present uh, research that supports their position, but then you got to remember, too, that there's probably, unless it's a non-controversial issue, there's probably lobbyists on both sides of the issue. So as a legislator, you're going to get in-depth research slanted from the lobbyists, but you're going to get both sides. Right. If you take if you take the time to read it, if you take the time to understand it, and so 
it's there. The research is there uh, for the lobbyists before a vote, but it comes from lobbyists, not from staff. Right. And um, people just have to understand that unless you're willing to spend a tremendous amount of money, more than we spend now for legislative staff, this is the way it's going to be. And uh, I guess the comforting thing about that is that you can rest assured that you, as an individual, you have a lobbyist uh, or two or three representing your side of the issues. You may not know it, uh, but if you're, let's you know, let's say you're over 65, the AARP provides a, supports a lobbyist, you know, and the, or if you're a retired teacher, they have a, a lobbyist. Everybody's got lobbyists that work for, uh, you know, that segment of the population that they live that they live in. Um, so, if there's an issue uh, before the general assembly that's controversial. There are going to be lobbyists providing the legislators with information, but it's going to be on both sides of the issue. Yeah. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Um, uh, I also wonder how impactful are like campaign donations or gifts in terms of influence on politicians when they're serving in the General Assembly? Right. When I first started, um, the limits on entertainment were very loose uh, and, the, and the maximums were pretty high on what you could spend on a legislator. Okay. And there's no question that there's not time during the day, uh, the legislative day, there's no time to really develop relationships. If you're talking to a legislator, you're imparting information or you're giving them something to read uh, or you're asking them how do they intend to vote on a certain issue because you're keeping track. Um, you pass in the hallways. You might chat for a few minutes before a committee meeting or a few minutes after a committee meeting. But the chance to really sit down and get to know someone does not really occur at the state house. It occurs outside of the state house. Uh, either at dinner uh, or at a sporting event or back in the district, back in their hometown uh, when you can meet for lunch and talk for uh, an hour or so when they're back home and, and don't have the time constraints they have at the state house. So you, what happens is, is that you naturally gravitate as a lobbyist towards the legislators that you like and you find ways to spend times with them, whether it's back in the district, playing golf, going out to dinner. Now, over time, that was more so back when I was a legislator in the 80s and early 90s. Since then, um, they have passed legislation and rules to severely curtail uh, that sort of spending. Okay. And so... Um, there isn't nearly as much of it as there used to be. Now, um, a lobbyist can still take legislators uh, to lunch or to dinner, but uh, everything is to be reported 
to the Indiana Lobby Registration Commission, and um, and how much does it impact uh, the contributions or the spending? I don't think that contributions or spending amount to as much as any personal relationship that you can develop over time by doing things together. Right. And so you can't spend as much as you used to be able to spend, or you, you may have to report it more than you used to have to report it, but it's still really important for a lobbyist to get to know a legislator um, more than just on the surface. And the longer you're there as a legislator and the longer you're there as a lobbyist, you're more likely to make those good friendships um, between two people who like each other's company. And um, now, does that mean that every time you want their vote that you get it? No. But it does mean that every time that you send them a text, they're going to read it, you know, and or every time you ask to see them out in the hallway, they're going to come out and talk to you. Whereas if you don't have that personal relationship, then um, if you send them a text, they may not read it or they may just look at it and delete it. Uh, Or if you ask them to come out in the hallway, they might not find the time. So um, for a lobbyist to do his or her job the best, they need to try and develop a good relationship with a legislator and that takes time. Um, and then they get, you know, then they quit or get beat and all that time goes out the door and you got to start over. So, um, I don't think it's the money. I mean, because they can't spend that much anymore. Um, I just think it's the time spent and oftentimes, you know, it takes a, a, a lunch or a dinner, uh, to spend that kind of time. Legislators also um, are not that impressed by the dollars given because there's very few, um, there are very few associations who give game-changing money. I mean, when you think about it, if a, if a campaign is going to cost two dollars or $300,000, then your $250 check or even maybe even a $500 check is not going to make the difference. Right. You know, it's not, it's not game changing money. Um, so, um, when I, when I would host a fundraiser, I certainly knew who was there. I certainly knew who contributed. Uh, same thing today. I mean, they know who shows up and they know how much they contributed, but when you have to contribute, let's say to 150 legislators every year, you're going to write about the same check, 250. I mean, they have suggested amounts, 250, 500, whatever, but everybody's writing the same checks, you know, and, and the checks, individual checks don't make that big of an impression because it's not, it's not enough money to make a difference. They all add up, obviously, yeah. to make the campaign um, affordable. But unless you drop ten grand or twenty grand or fifty grand on somebody, um, you know, it just—it's just another 
campaign contribution of, of many, and they kind of cancel each other out because they're coming from all directions, um, friends of yours and opponents, I mean, people that have opposed you on issues, um, you know, the, you can't afford not to write a check. I've always argued that, you know, you need to write a check, um, but it doesn't have to be a big one. Yeah. Okay. And not very many people write big checks. Right. You know, there aren't, not people, but associations, groups. Um, even when I had the beer wholesalers, you know, they, they could have written huge checks, but we wrote $500 checks and we wrote them to everybody, you know, Republicans and Democrats. Uh, I like to call it what you call it an access pack where, you know, you just, you want to be involved, but it's not, it's not a game changing pack where you only write a, a handful of checks every year to say leadership or committee chairman and they're $10,000. Now that's, that, that's trying to make an impact with money. Um, I like to pack where you just wrote a relatively nice check to everybody. Well, if you do that, say if you write a $500 check to 150 legislators, that's $75,000, you know, yeah. you throw on, you throw on, Leadership and governor and lieutenant governor and uh, I don't know whoever ma matters attorney general secretary of state I mean before long you're at a hundred thousand dollars and but you haven't written a check really to any one individual that's going to change the outcome of their race so um, I know people are opposed to. Uh, campaign contributions, but uh, it's an expensive game, and uh, I just used to argue that, you know, you don't need to be writing big checks, but you need to be writing them to everybody. Okay, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, I don't think, in my time there, I don't think I've ever known of a contribution that really made a difference. I mean, to change somebody's vote or to change somebody's opinion, I, I've never known of one. Right. You know? I mean, everybody, legislators expect you to write a check. So you write it. But they can't dictate how big it is. You know, what dictates how big it is is how, how large is your pack? You know, how much money do you have to spend uh, annually? And then how do you want to allocate it? And in our case, uh, it turned out to be a $500 check to everybody. And then uh, that's 75 grand. It's a lot of money. Yeah, sure. Um, what were the most controversial legislative issues during your time in the General Assembly? Well, um, I carried a bill that was referred to by the opponents as a beer baron bill. Okay. And um, it was a it was a kind of a technical issue that was unique to the beer industry. And um, so it was hard to get 150 legislators to understand 
why, first of all, alcohol is treated differently than any other product. I mean, you got to remember, there's two amendments to the Constitution related to alcohol. Uh, the one that enacted prohibition and then the one that lifted it. So alcohol is treated differently because, you know, it's a regulated product uh, from the time it's made until the time it's consumed. And um, along the way, after prohibition, we created what's called the wholesale tier where the manufacturer of alcohol cannot sell directly to the retailer. They have to sell first to their designated wholesaler who then in turn sells it to the retailer. And we did that coming out of prohibition to prevent the producer of the alcohol and the retailer from selling it too cheaply. Um, we wanted alcohol to be available and we wanted it to be relatively affordable, but we didn't want it to be cheap. And so during or before prohibition, the suppliers were selling directly to the taverns and the bars and it was not unheard of for, um, well, they, they were selling it too cheap. And they were causing a lot of problems in society. Okay. And it led to, among other things, prohibition. So coming out of prohibition, the decision was made to turn this industry from two tiers, supplier and retailer, into three tiers, supplier, wholesaler, and retailer. And I represent the middle tier, the wholesale tier. And Indiana, uh, back during the Doc Bowen administration, had decided that uh, wholesalers who had exclusive territories given to them by the brewer, that those were counterproductive and they were going to open the state up uh, so that wholesalers could go sell their beer anywhere they wanted that the breweries could not designate uh, an exclusive territory to for their products to a wholesaler. And that went on from like 1978 to 2001. And uh, it was devastating to the wholesaler industry uh, we started out with about 250 wholesalers and by the time what was called transshipping was over, we were down to about 50 and, um, and it didn't lower prices to the consumers. The retailers quickly, uh, decided that there was no reason for them to sell beer cheap, even though they were able to play wholesalers off against each other to get, cheap prices, they didn't have to pass along to the consumer. So the savings that the state of Indiana had hoped would go into the consumer's pocket was going into the retailer's pocket. And along the way, we were losing family businesses, the wholesalers, left and right, 
because they were being undercut by uh, people who were selling beer oftentimes at a loss and then having these wholesalers uh, having to declare bankruptcy. So anyway, knowing the beer business, um, I agreed to carry the bill and it was a knockdown, drag out fight the entire session. It was 1989, and um, every step along the way was a battle. Okay. And the retailers were buying full-page ads, uh, you know, calling us beer barons and and uh, trying to reestablish our monopolies. And uh, there was a lot of of um, rhetoric, a lot of heat. Um, a lot of misinformation took me forever to explain, uh, you know, why this industry is different than others, but, um, got it out of committee, uh, got it through the house. It was a 60, 40 vote in the house, exactly 30 Republicans and 30 Democrats voted yes. And, uh, 20 and 20 voted no. So it was, it was purely bipartisan, and a lot of it had to do with uh, the local wholesalers that were left uh, lobbying the legislators in their area to explain to them, uh, you know, why this system that was established under Doc Bowen was not only not working, but it was devastating to the industry, and the savings were not being passed along to the customers. So then we went to the Senate, same thing, a battle every step of the way. Uh, it tied up in the Senate 25 to 25. And um, Frankel Bannon was the lieutenant governor and president of the Senate. So the president of the Senate could break all tie votes. So he's presiding when it comes down 25-25, and after a long pause, he votes aye. So it passes 26 to 25. And um, it goes to Evan Bayh, who's governor, for his signature. And he told me before the session started that he was in favor of this bill passing. And if I could get it passed, that he would be happy to sign it. So it went to Evan Bayh, and it sat there on his desk for three weeks, I think. And then he vetoed it. And all hell broke loose among the beer wholesalers who, who knew that he had promised to sign it. And then a huge celebration from the retailers who had... Uh, accused him of taking a bribe from the Anheuser-Busch company when in fact it was a campaign contribution of like 10 grand. So anyway, they accused him of taking a $10,000 bribe and, and flooded the governor's office with phone calls against it. And basically, um, he just caved in to the pressure and uh, vetoed the bill uh, and told me, he said, uh, you know, we've got a lot of important elections 
coming up, including yours and mine. And I just decided that it was too controversial to sign it. I said, but you promised me you'd sign it uh, if we got it passed. And I said, you know, a lot of people have worked awfully hard to pass this thing. And he said, well, things have changed. <laughs> what I found out later was that he had, uh, he had forced the Democrat Central Committee to pay for a poll uh, as to the people's reaction to the beer baron bill. And so <clears throat> I don't think the poll had much of a chance um, when you ask people about beer baron. Nobody's for beer barons. Uh, but that's not what we were. We were family businesses that were getting uh, slaughtered by uh, wholesalers coming in from small towns and selling the beer uh, too cheap and then retailers not passing those savings along to the consumer. So he didn't, he didn't understand what he was doing. He just knew that it wasn't popular. Uh, so uh, a few a few years later, uh, when Frank O'Bannon was governor, um, then we got it passed and got it signed. But by then we were down to 33 wholesalers. So we lost over 200 family businesses for no good reason. Wow! And um, and it was it was a war between the beer wholesalers and the retailers. Uh, and those hard feelings uh, still last uh, to this day, but uh, it was really a shame. Yeah. Uh, anyway, that's my most controversial bill. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's see. Uh, now, turning the I guess the a corner here to uh, sort of big picture, reflective questions on your career. Um, did you have any regrets as a legislator? Well, I think I think if I had to do it over again, that I might have one of two things. I either should have stepped down in 90 and not been talked into running again, or I should have stayed longer and been more patient and, you know, worked my way up into maybe a leadership role or a committee chairman. Um, I mean, the most that I was able to accomplish was to get on uh, the Ways and Means Committee. And that really helped Ball State University more than any other constituent that I had. Okay. Um, but, um, and I could have continued to do that. Um, but so th I guess my biggest regret is is the decision I made in 90 to run again, but then to step down after the 91 session. Um, and then my second regret was to trust Evan Bayh. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> I never should have trusted Evan Bayh. <laughs> um, let's see, what was your proudest moment as a legislator? Well... Um, two things come to mind. Um, we used to have money to spend. Individual legislators used to have money to spend in the budget 
for uh, special projects back home. And in Muncie, in Delaware County, we had this dilapidated children's home uh, that was really uh, an embarrassment. And um, three of us, uh, Senator Allie Craycraft and State Representative Hurley Goodall and I made the decision to pool our money that we had to spend and and rebuild or build a new children's facility. And uh, Delaware County matched our money. And right now there's a beautiful uh, youth services building where a an old dilapidated two-story uh, uh, house used to stand, bigger than a house, kind of a dormitory. And so that was a wonderful thing. Um, and then uh, Ball State uh, has on its campus a laboratory school called Burris, B-U-R-R-I-S. And uh, Burris had been a laboratory school for many years uh, on Ball State's campus for uh, teaching, uh, and uh, they wanted to turn it into an academy. In addition to being Burris School, they wanted to turn it into an academy for math and sciences, and they wanted money in the budget, uh, $9 million in the budget, to uh, refurbish the school and bring it up to standards uh, before they did that and the uh my old buddies the indiana state teachers association were opposed to that money being spent and they were also opposed to the fact that that each school in the state of indiana could send uh two of their best students uh to this academy and um so i had to make a personal appeal to the Indiana State Teachers Association to stand down and not oppose this $9 million uh, to upgrade the school and establish this uh, Indiana Academy for Math and Science. Okay. And they, they did. They stood down. Uh, the money went into the budget. And now we have uh, a wonderful program there for uh, talented kids uh, who are so talented that the board, uh, you know, kind of bored at their old high school. But here they thrive when they're among other students just as gifted and they push each other to new heights. And it's been a, a real success story. Uh, ever since it was started. So I'm proud of that. I met a woman then in Bloomington once, and we were talking about my legislative career. And uh, in fact, she was a neighbor across the street. And we were talking one day about my legislative career. And she asked the same question. She said, you know, what was your, what was your fondest memory? And I said, the establishment of the, of the, uh, gifted and talented academy at, at Burris at Ball State and she starts crying. That's <laughs> not really something to cry about. Right. And she said, uh, it saved my son's life. Wow. She said he was, he was not 
at all happy where he was in Bloomington schools and um, was getting into kind of a bad way mentally. And um, she said he went to this school and she said, I, I firmly believe that it saved his life. So I don't know. Um, it was a touching moment. Yeah, you know? sure. And it came out of nowhere. I mean, it was years after that we had done that. But so I'd say that the, uh, you know, replacing the old dilapidated children's home and establishing the uh, math and science academy at Ball State are probably the two I, I like the most. Yeah, okay. Um, what advice would you give to future legislators or even current legislators? Just calm down. <laughs> quit, <laughs> quit, um, quit worrying about the next election. Yeah. Um, you know, um, legislators come and legislators go and, uh, you know, great, you're a state legislator, but, you know, get over it. Um, start doing the right thing and quit worrying about the next election. Uh, loosen up a little bit, you know, have a little fun. Um, this is a great place to be uh, at the General Assembly in the State House. I love being in the State House. You know, it's a beautiful building and um, uh, it's the center of the political universe in Indiana. Um, future leaders are, you know, being groomed there every day. Uh, but they're on both sides of the aisle, you know, and right now we got two camps that don't intermingle. Uh, just because the gerrymandered maps make it impossible for someone to look like they ever cooperated or compromised with the other side. And they're missing a lot, you know, they're missing a lot in terms of friendships. Yeah. They're missing, they're missing a lot in terms of fun. Um, they're wound up too tight and we're dealing with issues that um, are red meat issues push button issues that are more about the next election than they are about making Indiana a better place to live and work so um, you know get over it um, do the right thing and, and quit worrying about the next election yeah okay um, what, in your opinion, is the most important work of the Indiana General Assembly? Well, the budget, the biennial budget, um, is something that they need to spend appropriately. Uh, it's something that they need to to spend a little more money on yeah. things that need to be done in Indiana. We didn't need this uh, tax rebate where everybody in Indiana gets a hundred bucks um, or whatever it is on their, you know, tax return. We needed them to spend that money on infrastructure or on, you know, paying teachers more or hiring more firemen or policemen or for god's sakes cleaning up the water in indiana we rank 
as the dirtiest water in the country. Yeah, yeah. Uh, what an awful thing to say about your state. Yeah. You know, I mean, we just don't seem to care about the environment. And, um, and we're leaving this to our kids and our grandkids. So um, you need to, I'm not saying you need to raise more money. Just quit giving us, you know, tax breaks that we're not asking for. Um, fix the place up so our kids and our grandkids uh, don't inherit it in the shape it's in now. So leave it better than you found it. That'd be my advice. Leave it, leave Indiana better than you found it. Yeah. Um, and quit worrying about the next election. What would you say the pe- people of Indiana? Uh, what would you say the people of Indiana don't know about the Indiana General Assembly and how it operates? How badly the gerrymandered political maps uh, make it to get anything done. Yeah. Uh, they don't understand the gerrymandering. They hear the word, and you know they might think about it for a minute while it's on TV or in the newspaper, but the truth is they don't really understand how this has broken the system down to where it simply doesn't work in their best interests. And the only way the the majority party, whether it's Democrat or Republican, the only way the majority party is going to abandon gerrymandering is if the uh, the people demand it now the only states where we they have uh, established uh, a commission to draw the maps is in states where citizens can propose and vote on a referendum referendum states <laughs> have two things they've got marijuana and then they've got commissions to draw the maps now, you know, I don't know how people are going to feel about Indiana landing in that camp, but I'm just saying that the majority party in a state like Indiana, where there are no referendums, is not going to give up drawing the maps unless people insist on it. Now, I don't know, except at the ballot box, how they're going to insist on it, but they just don't understand, the public doesn't understand how bad our government is right now because of gerrymandered maps. They're so sophisticated. You know, in the old days, like I said earlier, they just kind of drew them out of their shirt pocket. And now, every 10 years, the sophistication increases exponentially. And um, of the maps, the computer, you know, the, the software. And so legislators run scared of their district because um, if they win the primary, it's really easy in the fall, but the primary just has them scared to death and it shouldn't, you know, the primary shouldn't have you scared to death. You should be worried about the fall election, not the, not the spring election. And um, the public doesn't understand that. Yeah. Um, how has the state of Indiana changed over the course of your lifetime? Well, <clears throat> politically, um, 
there are no Democrats left in southern Indiana. Um, when I got to the legislature, a good, uh, quite a few Democrats came from southern Indiana and from the cities. But now, um, uh, Democrats are only coming from the urban areas. So the rural areas of Indiana have become uh, Republican, and it didn't used to be that way. Um, I don't know. I mean, I, uh, Indiana has lost a lot of manufacturing that um, was prevalent when I was growing up. Uh, in Muncie, we had uh, Warner Gear, we had Delco Battery, uh, we had others that don't come to mind right now. But, I mean, there were thousands of jobs uh, in the automotive industry in Muncie. They're all gone. Uh, same thing with Richmond, Marion, Kokomo, Lafayette, Terre Haute, um, just decimated. You know, cities like Muncie... Uh, one time, Muncie had three high schools, Muncie Central, Muncie Northside, Muncie Southside. Now they're back down to one high school, Muncie Central, and it's not very, it's not nearly as big as it used to be. So, um, you know, Indiana's getting older as young people leave um, for brighter, uh, greener pastures. Um, so I miss, I miss all those manufacturing jobs, you know, where people without a college education could make a good living and they're gone forever. So we have to, uh, we have to do a better job of giving our students educational opportunities that, uh, you know, will lead to jobs in new industries, um, not manufacturing. And, um, we need to figure out, how to spend the money properly to get that done. Yeah. Um, how have the people of Indiana changed? Well, like everywhere else, I think they're more partisan in their thinking than they were growing up. Um, you know, I think growing up, it was, it was, uh, a little more laid back and, um, People were Americans first and maybe Republican or Democrat second or third. And now um, it just seems to me that there's too many people that are Americans second. Okay. And um, I think that's pretty sad. And how have the people of India not changed? There's still <laughs> people that... People that come here from other states say we're still, you know, really friendly. Okay. <laughs> and, you know, I think Hoosiers are basically friendly, nice people uh, in a superficial way. Mm -hmm. I think I think when you dig beneath the surface that we're a little, a little meaner than okay. we used to be. But um, when people come here, they're very, um, they're very pleased with their experience. So... We must be doing something right. Right. <laughs> um, last question. What do you want the people of Indiana to know about their influence on the Indiana General Assembly? Well, I think that their influence um, 
is if they're registered to vote, then, you know, the General Assembly knows where the votes are. And um, they know basically how those people intend to vote. And so um, if you're not registered to vote, if you're not voting, then um, nobody, you know, the General Assembly is all about politics. So if you're not registered to vote and you're not voting, then you basically don't really count. Yeah. Um, So the only way to protect yourself is to... um, is to vote and to be involved at the local level. Uh, you don't have to travel to Indianapolis. You can wait until your legislator has an event back home and uh, go to it. You know, wait in line to talk to them afterwards or raise your questions in the public setting. But at least at the local level, vote and and be involved enough to to show up and uh, and voice your concerns. Yeah, sure. Well, that's all the questions I have for you. Is there anything that I didn't ask about that you want to mention? I don't think so. Okay. Really? Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much uh, for taking the time to do this. Really appreciate You're it. You're very welcome. Thanks for doing it. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I think it. Uh, I think there'll be a lot of interesting things uh, to add to the project <laughs> with your interview. So.